0: Hi there and welcome to another podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Today I'm joined by Dr Matt Maiden to talk about his recently published work on the prevalence of life-limiting illnesses in patients admitted to Australasian intensive care units. Matt is an intensive care specialist at the Royal Adelaide Hospital in South Australia and Barwon Health in Victoria, and he is head of the ICU Research and Quality Assurance Programme. His research interests include preclinical models of disease, conduct of clinical trials, and health outcomes after critical illnesses. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. Matt, your group has recently published findings from a survey you conducted regarding patients with life limiting illnesses who are admitted to the ICU. Is there a standard way in the literature for defining life limiting illnesses for research purposes? There is, uh,
1: and uh, there are a, a couple of different groups that have identified um, diseases and stages of diseases where patients are likely to die in the next 12 months. And these were developed to try and help doctors have conversations with patients who are approaching the end of their life. Um, and so for the purposes of our study, we used these frameworks that have been set up by um, you know essentially palliative care, um, groups um, so that for example um, the, the definitions we used for our study of of a life living illness uh, are those who really do have advanced severe chronic disease from which they're likely to die within 12 months and that includes metastatic cancer or cancer that's not treatable um, if they had advanced frailty so a score above 6 if they had dementia which was where they had no consistent meaningful conversation or they needed assistance with their um, ADLs, Uh, if someone was a resident from a nursing home, if someone had 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 a stroke and had a minimal conscious state or dense hemiparesis, if they had heart failure consistent with New York class class 3 or 4, if they had respiratory failure needing home oxygen or were breathless less than 100 metres, if they were on dialysis chronically, or if they had degenerative neurological disease, such as metoneuron disease with aspiration pneumonia, or multiple sclerosis with dysphagia, or, or Parkinson's disease needing daily assistance. So, you know, they're, they're reasonably advanced diseases where I don't think any of us would be surprised that a patient would be likely to die within 12 months.
0: Matt, what was the driver for starting to look at these types of patients in the ICU? Where did this survey begin?
1: So uh, my colleague Neil Orford and his team lead a program called iValidate, which was um, a, a, a program to identify patients who were approaching the end of their life and to ensure that those patients had had a conversation about their goals, their life values, with the intention of trying to ensure that the treatment provided to those patients was aligning with what was important to those patients and um, the I think that this started because there was a perception that we were increasingly being asked in the ICU to look after more patients who were approaching the end of their life and that an important component of that was obviously to understand the patient's understanding of their disease and what was important to them um, and to further developed that program that I validate program um, that was born out of Geelong and so we had some idea what was happening in Geelong but but we thought we should probably have a better idea what was happening around Australia and New Zealand and so that was the purpose of this study was to look at a, a point prevalence in Australia New Zealand intensive care units of how many patients had a life limiting illness.
0: Now, the survey that you conducted was part of the ANZIC's Clinical Trials Group Point Prevalence Program. Can you tell us what information you collected as part of that survey?
1: Yeah, so the Point Prevalence Program uh, is um, an absolutely fantastic and essential research program uh, that is overseen by the ANZIC CTG and by the George Institute. Um, Every year, or sometimes it's been a couple of years, uh, uh, units, uh, intensive care units are asked to participate, and there's a whole range of um, unit and patient demographic data that is collected on a particular day in a in, in the year, and uh, the amount of information collected there is quite extensive. So, as I say, patient demographics, diseases, severity of illnesses, physiological parameters uh, are collected as part of that, and then on top of that. Um, uh, people can ask specific questions related to a a, um, a a question that they're interested in. And so for our purposes, it was this life-living illness question. So as well as all the patient demographic and unit-specific data that the point prevalence program collected, we also collected um, whether patients had a life-living illness, the sort of life-living illness the patient had, um, and whether patients had a, uh, an advanced
0: care directive admission to ICU. Matt, the the core question that you were trying to answer was what the prevalence of life uh, limiting illnesses were in patients admitted to Australasian ICUs. What did you find? So in this
1: study there were 682 patients admitted to the ICU on the study day and of those 682, 178 patients had a life limiting illness. So that's about a quarter of the patients in ICU on this particular day around Australia and New Zealand had a life-limiting illness. Uh, And I think that's an exceptionally important take-home point from this study, is that a quarter of the patients in Australia and New Zealand committed to ICU seem to have a disease from which they wouldn't be, where they'd be quite likely to die within the next 12 months. Um, and I think the, the other key feature we found was that um, only 16% of those patients who had a life illness, only 16% of them had an advanced care directive. So even though these patients, you know, um, must have had months or sometimes years of worsening health that, you know, only about one in eight
0: of the patients had ever discussed how they'd like to be treated when they are approaching the end of life. Matt, what do you think are the implications for this? I mean they, they are quite stunning statistics um, given the potential resource implications, the the discussions as you say with only one in eight patients having um, documented uh, evidence of advanced care planning. What do you think the implications are for healthcare, particularly ICU? That's uh, that's uh, we can have a conference on this, I think,
1: Todd. Um, but to my mind, this illustrates that um, uh, there, there is an increasing, um, like, is it expectation or um, uh, pathway that patients who uh, show signs of critical illness are being asked to be looked after in the intensive care unit, um, and if you know, if it's a quarter at the moment, if a quarter of the patients in ICU have a life in illness, I fear what will happen in the next five years. um, And clearly uh, being treated in ICU is expensive. Um, But importantly, I'd be very concerned about whether the, you know, being treated in ICU, whether it aligns with what patients want when they're approaching the end of their life. Um, And, uh, you know, um, I think as intensive care has developed more beds, there's potentially more capacity to look after patients and there's maybe, as I said at the start, maybe greater expectation that patients will come to ICU regardless whether they're um, approaching the end of their life with a life-living illness.
0: Matt, what do you think needs to happen next? Is there more research to be done to explore this issue further or do we need to start a conversation about how to manage this issue?
1: I think it's going to require both approaches, Todd. I think uh, to have an informed discussion, we're going to need data, uh, like anything. Um, uh, But I don't think we should wait until that data is available to start having some pretty frank conversations about what the right thing to do is with these um, group of patients. So um, while we have found some really important baseline information that you know a quarter of our patients were dying before they came to us. Um, the uh, what we don't know yet is: did those patients think that that their time in ICU was worthwhile? Um, do they think that that was the treatment they received uh, acceptable to them? Uh, were they happy that they were treated in ICU? Um, were other treatment options afforded, or considered, and suggested, or uh, you, know, a, you know, made available to them? Um, uh, I think we need to start including costs, uh, financial costs, uh, over. Um, Treating um, all ICU patients, um, but also it's particularly, I think, relevant to patients who are approaching, um, you know, the, the last stage of their life and, and is is being treated in ICU. Um, uh, how does that impact on the overall cost of providing healthcare? Um, uh, but, but as I said at the start, most importantly, is we we really need to understand whether. These treatments that have been provided in ICU to these patients, whether that is actually aligns with what the patients would have wanted, um, and are they do they think that their their remaining health has benefited from the treatment that they've been given? I think the term in- intensive care is um, not necessarily ideal, and in a hospital setting. Uh, when patients, you know, old, frail, very sick patients, when, they're, um, when they come to hospital and there's, there's, there's conversations from the emergency department or from the medical registrars about, oh, do you want to go to intensive care? Or they ask the family, do you want your mother to go to intensive care? Then everyone says, well, a lot of times people say yes because they want their, their mother or father, they want to be cared for and, and, and they want their... Want their relatives to receive intensive care, particularly if they are approaching the end of their life. But but you can provide intensive care without coming to an intensive care unit. And 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 I think many of these patients, given the option of having intensive care in an intensively comfortable bed with intensive access to their family, with intensive access to whatever is important to them, with intensive support, with um, with care being that what's intensively provided rather than treatments and blood pressure and urine outputs and oxygen levels and pressures and all the other things that we do in an intensive treatment unit. I, I, I think patients and their families may well prefer intensive care in another setting rather than in an intensive care unit. And, and I think um, that it would be very interesting to obtain the Comments and insights from GPs, and particularly country GPs, who look after patients like this regularly in their intensive care units in their country hospitals without ventilators and dinotropes and dialysis. And I wonder how much more content and satisfied patients and their families are with that level of treatment in that setting compared to coming to a metropolitan ICU and being subjected to. Standard intensive care treatments that we all have learnt to use. So, sorry, that's a bit of a uh, going off on a bit of a tangent. But I think that that's a you know uh, they're the sort of important conversations and the important subtleties of the use of language that um, that we
0: need to start having based
1: on the information
0: that we've got from this point prevalence study. Matt, there is a general. Perception out there that uh, this is a, um, a an issue that is continuing to evolve. Do you have a sense for why this might be happening? Um, I, 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 to be honest, I, I don't. It would be
1: um, my opinion, or you know, which I haven't <laughs> hesitated giving already. But uh, no, I, I haven't got any data to suggest why this may continue to increase, but. Um, as I said earlier, you know societal expectations, uh, 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 um, hospital, the way hospital management is, you know, the, the way patients are managed in a hospital setting, um, uh, you know, not having continuity of care. So often these decisions about treatment once you're in hospital don't involve the patient's GP, who's probably known the patients for a long time, um, and so. Uh, I think that this is all combining with the ageing population, with increasing expectations of living longer uh, and with disjointed healthcare, I think is going to contribute to this becoming uh, more and more of an issue for intensive care medicine.
0: Matt, I believe you have a particular acknowledgement that you'd like to make as part of this?
1: Yeah, this, this... the project was actually led by uh, a lady called Tanya Aldican, uh, who sadly died uh, during the preparation of, of the manuscript. Uh, Tanya had worked in the Geelong ICU for it was over 20 years as a as a ICU nurse and then an educator and then a research nurse and had become an exceptionally well-respected, experienced research nurse that... Um, that you know, taught so many people so many different aspects of intensive care and how to conduct research in critically ill patients. And Tanya saw the importance of understanding what was happening with the number of patients approaching the end of life. With, that this this felt like this was a, 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 an important issue to describe. And so Tanya led this project. Um, Presented it, won an award at one of the local research presentations for it, and then, uh, as unfortunately a um, bit over a year ago, um, Tanya had a cardiac arrest after going for a bike ride, and um, and and so we sort of honoured this work to the to the memory and that
0: work and the friendship of Tanya Alderkin. And I, too, had the good fortune of working with Tanya and learning from her. So uh, we'd like to dedicate this uh, podcast to Tanya. Um, Matt, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your thoughts on your research. Thanks very much for the opportunity, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this, please visit our website at Oslercommunity.com.